Projector starts, and so begins this episode of Movie Nights and Matinees, the podcast for people who enjoy movies from when we actually had to go to the movies. I'm your host, Bill Groves, and this is episode three, Voyage to the Third Dimension. Wow, I think I actually creeped myself out a little there. Anyhow, my guests and I will be talking about 3D movies, so put on your special glasses and prepare to duck. surprise i like it it's a new experience to talk direct to an audience and uh, if i have the time i want to tell you about another new experience we're just finishing my new picture stranger wore a gun it's in 3d naturally we didn't want to be left at the post in this great new technical race in the picture industry so we decided to go all out 3d stereophonic sound and technicolor now that's a mouthful and it was an armful to do, but exciting. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining me on this edition of Movie Nights and Matinees. Not only is the subject 3D, but for the first time, the conversation will include three people. And of course, this is episode three. I know, I'm just so stinking clever. Anyhow, with me to discuss stereoscopic cinema are Bob Fermanek, founder of the 3D Film Archive, and Greg Kintz, the Archive's technical director. Gentlemen, welcome to Movie Nights and Matinees. Well, thank you so much, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Likewise, Bill. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here. My pleasure. Now, before I start firing relevant and, I hope, coherent questions at you, some of which may be fairly in-depth. Get it? In-depth 3D. Anyway, um, <laughs> where's that Animal Crackers clip when I need it? Uh, but anyway, before I start doing that, let me offer you some personal context. Uh, if you've listened to prior episodes, you're probably aware that the premise of the podcast is movies from when we actually had to go to the movies. And later on, I'll be asking you for your most memorable movie-going experiences, but so far, I've not shared mine. It's actually a double feature of sorts. On a Saturday back in September of 2003, my wife Debbie and I made a trip into Hollywood and saw how the West was won in full Cinerama at the Cinerama Dome. Sitting in front of that enormous curved screen as the curtains opened and that magnificent music started behind the MGM Lion was a real thrill. Afterward, we kicked around Hollywood for a while, had some dinner, and then made our way over to the Egyptian Theater, which was hosting the World 3D Expo. That evening, we got to see Kiss Me Kate in 3D for the first time, as well as the 3D Bugs Bunny cartoon, Lumberjack Rabbit. Although the Expo souvenir t-shirt has since worn out, I still have the program and a very special movie-going memory, for which I have you to thank, Bob. Well, that was the 3D Expo was an incredible event. Uh, it was done for the 50th anniversary of the big 3D boom, and I was there at every show, and Jeff Joseph produced it. He had the idea that something needed to be done, and he had the resources to make it happen, which I didn't. I had all the prints. But I didn't have the means to get the Egyptian and the Cinematheque and every, everything involved. That was an incredible experience. I don't know, there were 30 some odd programs and 
you're a little bleary eyed at the end of it, but I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. We actually went back the following weekend to see for the first and only time in 3d, one of my two favorite Martin and Lewis films, money from home. And uh, we uh, took, a, took a good friend of ours with us for that. And that was uh, another, another nice memory. Damon Runyon's funniest story was just made for Dean and Jerry. Well, they never tangled with anyone before like those wonderful Runyon tough guys. Money from Home is uh, a very special film to me for a number of reasons because I, I had a good relationship, friendship with Jerry Lewis for about the last 35 years of his life and uh, talked a bit about Money from Home and he had some pretty wild memories of the set and these tractor loads of equipment being brought on to shoot it in Technicolor 3D, which was two, three strip cameras interlocked. So you're having six rolls of film go through for every take. And it was a, a massive project. But yeah, that, the whole expo was fantastic, I think. And I believe, Greg, wasn't that the first time we met in person? It was, yeah. We'd been talking via phone and email for about three years. But yeah, that was. That was the first time we met. Wow. How perfect a segue was that? Just one other money from home memory I have, just as a complete aside. A few years ago, when Debbie and I were living in Houston, uh, sponsored by our church, we did a monthly Saturday afternoon matinee program at a uh, senior retirement home nearby. And one of the ones that we showed was money from home. And I remember in my introduction, uh, when we were doing that, uh, standing up saying, you know, well, you know, this was originally uh, shot and, and released in 3D. Can't show it to you in 3D here, but I'm going to have Wes over behind the screen throwing stuff at you every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, one of the things, too, you talk about memorable experiences. You know, Money from Home does not have a reputation for being one of the better of the Martin Lewis's. It's, it's kind of midway, you know, the midpoint. But that expo screening was which sold out, and I think we had probably 700 people there. It really struck home just how much a comedy film comes to life with an audience. And oh, yeah. they, you, you were there. You saw how they responded. And I, I left her saying, wow, Money from Home is really one of the best Martin and Lewis movies. Yeah, that and Artists and Models are my two favorites. Yeah. How many sellout shows were there in the first expo? Oh, oh my six gosh. Or seven? A lot, yeah. I mean, that was just, that was lightning in a bottle. Because it was, it was the, the 50th anniversary. You had people traveling from around the world. You know, they were seeing prints that they had not seen before. And some of them have never been seen again. Things like Arena. And it was, yeah, it was, it was an amazing event. Made a lot of friends and just had a great time. Really was like a 3D Woodstock. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's a great analogy. Um, <laughs> so, to, well, to backtrack a little bit. Although 3D didn't take hold of me the way it did you, Bob, from reading the archive history page on your website, it sounds as if you and I had some parallel influences during our childhood between Viewmaster, Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, 8mm films. So for you, how did those elements combine to set you on this career path? When I was about 12, uh, I was in New York with my dad and saw a poster for the reissue of This is Cinerama. And the image of the audience engulfed by this huge wraparound screen just captured my imagination. And I asked my dad what he could tell me about Cinerama. And he told me a little bit about that, a little bit about 3D. And I wanted to see these films. I, I, you know, I said, well, great. Let's, let's, 
Let's watch them somehow. You couldn't. There was no way in the 70s to see any of these vintage films. There were a few of them that had been converted, badly converted to anaglyphic 3D, which was the red and cyan system. And as I started getting involved with film restoration and more industry type jobs, uh, I really made it a point to try to locate and, and save as many of them as I could. And here we are. Yeah. So, Greg, how about you? What uh, what led you down this path? Uh, for me, it was uh, the local college in the late 70s showed um, Keith Motter's space and Creature from the Black Lagoon. And growing up, I'd seen those on late night TV. And so it was a real, pardon the pun, an eye-opener that these films that I loved and grew up with were shot in 3D. And thankfully, the prints were decent enough where I could get a good 3D effect from them. They weren't as good as the dual 35 polarized that they were originally presented in. But um, yeah, they had me hooked. And then that was the late 70s. And it was just like a year or two later, the uh, 3D wave kicked off with coming at you. So yeah. Yeah. For me, I think the first 3D film I saw was the re-release of The Bubble under the title Fantastic Invasion of Planet Earth, which is now, it's my go-to to show somebody the possibility of an impressive 3D. I'm actually not not that big a fan of the film itself. I mean, it feels, I've, I've said this before, it feels kind of like a Twilight Zone episode stretched out to feature length, but I'm telling you, there is there, there is one effect <laughs> in that movie <laughs> that is worth owning it for to you know you have somebody over with your 3d blu-ray system and you pop that in and it's just wow but uh we've used the the terms or you guys have used uh, the two key terms here anaglyphic and polarized 3d so a lot of people don't realize that there are two types of 3d and there are actually subtypes within the polarized but could you just kind of explain those and kind of clear up any confusion as to what the 3D is that we're talking about? Sure. Uh, anaglyphic was the first time that 3D was done on film. Uh, and there were some tests done in 1915 and shown in New York. And then in the 1920s, there were a feature and a, a bunch of shorts that were shown in anaglyphic. And, and as you mentioned, easier. that's those are the ones with the red and the blue filters over each other. Correct. Yeah, the red, red and the blue. Uh, there was another feature shown with this called Teleview, system where they actually had electronic uh, devices hooked up in front of each seat in the theater, which was a little impractical. Supposedly the 3D was very good, but you know, not, not exactly something you could take around the country. Mm -hmm. uh, so anaglyphic stayed the format for 3D exhibition until the mid-1930s. And then Edward Land uh, with the Polaroid Corporation developed polarizing film that uh, enabled you to capture left and right discrete images and by using polarization filters in the projection ports uh, allowed your left eye to see the left image and the right to see the right and it, it was incredibly high quality and uh, that was pretty much how all of the golden age 3d films were shown there were 50 features there were dozens of shorts and cartoons the only ones in 1953 that were anaglyphic were some real kind of, you know, low budget shorts that were done, some burlesque things and, and nothing terribly significant. But 
where the confusion comes in in the 1970s, uh, six, late 60s and into the 70s, some of the features were converted from the original polarized to anaglyphic, things like Creature from the Black Lagoon, It Came from Outer Space, The Mad Magician. And then in the 80s, when that very brief theatrical 3D revival hit with things like Friday the 13th and Jaws 3D, about half a dozen of the vintage features were converted to anaglyphic for television broadcast. But uh, that's not how they were seen originally. And one of the great things about the whole 3D Blu-ray market is it's given us the opportunity over the last uh, eight or nine years to restore these things and get them back out there in, in discrete polarized 3d, which, uh, you know, people are blown away with how good these, these pictures look from films that were shot 70 years ago. Yeah. And the polarized glasses, unlike the, the red and blue, they're just, they have a slight tint to them. And I mean, that's really just when you're looking at them, that's the only thing you notice that's different. So with that, they allow you to uh, to see these things in 3D, these movies as they were intended to be seen when they were released so many years ago. So in terms of what's called, I guess, the golden age of 3D at this point, what were the, the presentation issues that uh, made it so brief? Well, uh, to properly project it, you had to have two prints, two 35-millimeter prints representing a left side and a right side, shown in frame-accurate synchronization. Even if your shutters were out of phase, you could be in sync frame-accurate, but if your shutters are out of phase, you get kind of a watery image on screen. Now, that won't give you a headache, but you know, 90 minutes of a watery image is not going to exactly want you to rush back to see the next 3D movie. But if the films were shown out of synchronization, which happened a lot, a lot more than even I realized when we started doing the research, you walked away with a headache. And, you know, if you paid your 85 cents and got a migraine from watching uh, House of Wax, you weren't about to go back and, and get more headaches. So the Polaroid Corporation had a huge stake in the success of 3D movies because they were making the glasses and had you know, millions of dollars on, on the table. And uh, they did some field testing in the summer and fall of 1953 and found that roughly half of the 3D films were not being shown properly and a little bit too late, but they did develop some tools to help the, the people in the booth present a proper show. But by that point, the damage was done. And by early 1954, 3D was gone. So in terms of the anaglyph, I guess one advantage that that had was it allowed you to put both images on the same strip of film. So for one thing, you didn't have to have an intermission in order to change out the reels in both projectors. And I guess it probably also made sense for movies where there was only a, uh, uh, you know, a 3d sequence here and there, something like the mask, for instance. Yeah. Um, uh, that's where anaglyphic was effective. If, if, you know, a film like the mask, it's a flat movie with three different 3D segments. And the burlesque shorts were great because, you know, grindhouses would book them and, and, you know, stick them in between some of the features. And that was easy to do. But just in terms of the quality, everyone that worked on these films at, at the major studios was striving for a really optimum uh, stereoscopic image. And Anaglyphic couldn't deliver that. So there was really never any consideration to going to anaglyphic for a mainstream studio release. They were working, Technicolor and Polaroid were working on a system called Vectograph, 
which would have enabled an image on one strip of film. But again, it, it just was happening too late to really make much of a difference. One of the things with Anaglyph, you know, going further on what Bob was saying, one of the advantages Anaglyph had is you did not need a silver screen. You did not need dual projection. The only thing you needed were cheap glasses. And that's why over the decades, you've seen Anaglyph come back again and again, just because despite its various weaknesses, it's easy to present. Yeah, so any theater can show it without having to really go out of their way. I did see an Anaglyph re-release on Creature from the Black Lagoon. And actually, that's the only time I've had a headache from 3D. I had one for about three days after that, I think. That's not unusual. (laughs) So what what was the first film restored by either you personally, Bob, or the archive as a whole? Well, I did a number of restorations uh, in the uh, 80s and into the 90s, uh, not 3D related, some Abbott and Costello and some Jerry Lewis things. Uh, The very first left-right 35-millimeter pair that I found and synchronized was Robot Monster, ironically. Uh, I was working at a, a storage facility in New Jersey, a film film uh, shipping building, and uh, was going through nitrate vaults was what they were paying me to do. But on my lunch break, I was exploring. Mm-hmm. And this was one of these old film depots that went back to the 1920s, uh, the silent era. And I was just wandering the aisles and looking at, you know, all these shippers and titles of films and and. Uh, there was one on the top shelf labeled Monster from Mars. And, you know, as a monster kid and a science fiction nut, I said, what is Monster from Mars? I've never heard of that. So I climbed up, took it down. It turned out to be a complete right side of Robot Monster. And I said, wow, that's a pretty cool find. And a few days later, in another vault, also on the top shelf, another Monster from Mars turned out to be the opposing side. So all of a sudden, without even trying, I had a left and right pair. And I didn't realize at the time, but what was really uh, significant about that discovery is that the company that wound up getting the rights to the film in the 70s, Medallion Television, got incomplete elements. So the negatives and fine grains that exist on Robot Monster are not complete. I had the only intact left-right version of the film. And... I remember syncing them up. You know, you had to replace all the missing frames and, and get it into synchronization. And I, I was not set up in the screening room here to run dual 35 millimeter. So I took it into a facility in New York. My expectations were pretty low because Robot Monster didn't have a great reputation. With the swiftness of a deadly cosmic ray, the Earth is invaded by indestructible moon monsters. Their ghastly mission, death for all humans. And the anaglyphic VHS that Medallion had done had all these flat sections. So I figured, well, you know, this is going to be a a bit of a waste of time. But that thing hit the screen, and I was blown away with how good it looked. The the 3D cinematography was really well done. Good camera rig, good crew. And, you know, except for a few stock shots in the film, everything is fully three-dimensional. And it's, you know, it's on a par with the major studio films at that time. And they shot this thing on location over the course of four days. So it's uh, it's quite remarkable. Uh, and that was the first one. Once that happened, I kicked into high gear. I said, okay, I've got to find more of these left-right prints. Mm-hmm. 
and worked on it for over a decade. And it, it kind of culminated in that first 3D Expo. I think I think I provided something like 27 of the 33 movies that were shown. So uh, it paid off. Well, now, apart from just locating any missing elements, uh, what's usually the most challenging aspect of doing a restoration? Boy, that's a tough one. Um, each element can have its own set of surprises and challenges. You know, sometimes you can have deteriorated elements. Sometimes you need to access multiple elements to get all the pieces together. You know, in in the case of Robot Monster, we've had, for example, we've had work from multiple sources and do a substantial amount of work on those. Whereas in the case of GOG, we had the complete left eye side, thanks to Bob, but that was almost monochromatic. Hmm. So we had to find a way of restoring the color without causing new issues. What would you say has been your most difficult restoration to date? Um, for me, I would say it's a tie between GOG and Robot Monster. Bob, how about you? Well, every film. Uh, we've done 26 films since October 2014, which was our first release. Every single film has its own challenges. And, you know, Greg's the guy in the trench. He could tell you horror stories. <laughs> You know, and just when you think you've seen it all, something else comes up. None of them have been easy. Uh, let's 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 say say it that way. But uh, I'm, know, I'm interested in hearing one of the horror stories. That sounds uh, intriguing. Well, I think the horror stories come when you get the scans and you you look at it. And you said, "Oh my God, I've got to work with this." You know, um, <laughs> you know, one of the challenges for you know doing. All, all credit to Kino Lorber, because if they weren't securing these licenses for us, we wouldn't be getting these things done. But, you know, sometimes the funds aren't there to go back to camera negative because there are a whole, a whole set of parameters that you have to meet with the rights holders to access the original camera negative. So a lot of times we have to work from dupe elements. And, you know, that presents all sorts of challenges. Greg, maybe... Maybe tell the listeners a little bit about what you were up against with the Diamond Wizard. Yeah, and with, uh, you know, if going a little further, Bob, on what you were saying, you know, when it comes to the, to the price tag of restoring these titles, we're really restoring two titles for the cost of one because there's a complete left eye side, there's a complete right eye side, and sometimes these elements, especially if they were from – like if one's an IP and the other's a camera negative, or they've been stored in different locations, each eye side can have its own unique challenges. So, you know, a lot of times it's getting getting not only correct color correction, but getting that left and right eye side to both match correctly. Uh, th those can be a real chore. You know, along with the normal deterioration that you can have in any... 2D film restoration workflow. Is there one that you're most proud of among all the ones you've done? Bob, do you have a, do you have one that's on your, on your top? I'm going to have to say God. Built to serve man, its brain was an electronic miracle. It could think a thousand times faster, kill a thousand times faster. Then suddenly it became a Frankenstein of steel, out to destroy its makers. 
thrill to miracles of science beyond imagination. When I was working for Jerry Lewis, I got to know Herbert Strzok, the director, and he was very proud of his work on the film, but he thought that it was lost in 3D. And it was until I found the left side print. And as Greg had mentioned earlier, that was an enormous technical challenge for him because there was no color left. It was a totally faded 1954 Pathé color stock. But he made it work, and it screened at the Expo with the faded print uh, matched up to uh, a print of the right eye with good color. But for the Blu-ray, Greg was able to develop these really complex uh, algorithms to extract color from the opposing eye and overlay it onto the faded side. And if you think that sounds easy, you know, try to do that with a faded photograph in Photoshop. You'll see it's uh, not as not as simple as it sounds. And uh, so, well, yeah, frankly, think- and frankly, anybody who it, it does anything to which the word algorithm applies makes me immediately think it's not easy. <laughs> well, if- you know, Greg, you 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 know, you're brilliant at finding workarounds for all these problems. I don't know about that. It's it's one of these cases where you know there's an end goal that you have to meet and you just need to find a way to make it happen. And it just sometimes there's just not a choice. You're you're gonna find a way and put time in and, and make it work. And that's been the way it's been for a lot of our tools and innovations as far as shot by shot stereoscopic correction, um, what we call panel matching, and that's getting not only the color, but the densities in the left and right eye to match up, you know, or even implementing an anaglyph backup system for people who don't have the luxury of of owning a 3D, a dedicated 3D setup, you know, what I would call the Rolls-Royce of 3D you know, um, when you're watching it in polarized or with um, frame sequential with your projector. You know, with Anaglyph, we just had to find a way to make it work, get superior cancellation, and not have all these headaches that the previous systems had presented. And you just have to find a way to make it work. Well, you guys have done amazing work. I mean, I am thankful and obnoxiously proud to have basically all of the golden age 3D titles that have been made available on 3D Blu-ray in large part, thanks to you. I mean, I guess maybe there are some of those that you weren't involved in, but the vast majority of them, I'm pretty sure you were, right? Yeah, uh, we've been uh, very aggressive with going after as many titles as, as we can with licensing. And again, a huge shout out to Kino Lorber, uh, Frank Tarzi and Richard Lorber. Uh, I'd met with them in 2014 and told them what my vision was now that 3D on Blu-ray was a reality. And I'll never forget what Richard Lorber said. He said, you know, listen, if we can help get the licenses for you, uh, we'll make it happen. Uh, if we make money, that's great. If we break even, that's okay. If we lose money, then we may have to talk. But mm-hmm. uh we haven't lost money yet, and uh, it's just having a very efficient workflow and getting things done uh, in, in a very high quality for a, a very reasonable rate. And there's no, you know, it's it's going full blown uh, right now. I think we've got about 
10 titles in the pipeline and only about three or four have been announced. So there's lots of goodness coming on 3D Blu-ray in the uh, next couple of years. Wow. That's uh, yes. Make me drool. So if I may for a moment, take kind of what I guess would be the equivalent of a scenic turnout mentioned earlier, the, uh, the childhood interest that I had and that uh, you Bob had, according to your, your history on the website of into Viewmaster. And one of the, uh, the things as a Viewmaster collector, which I've only recently qualified to call myself, one of the real tough types to get are uh, Viewmaster reels tied to some of these movies from the Golden Age that I gather were used in lobby displays for upcoming 3D presentations. They'd set up a Viewmaster, have have one of these reels in it, and people stop by, check it out, and the idea was to draw them to the movie when it was, when it was released. Do you have any uh, specific knowledge as far as that promotional process with those reels? Yeah, uh, it started with Moana Devil. Uh, when it opened in Hollywood at the Paramount, they had a, a, a bank of uh, stereo realist displays where you could look at scenes from the movie taken on the set with a realist camera. They realized when House of Wax was going to come out in the spring that they had to find something a little more practical, and they worked out a deal with the Sawyers Corporation to do a single real movie preview for House of Wax. And they built this display cabinet, which had three viewers, and they would have them in theater lobbies, bus depots, camera stores, anywhere that they could get people to stop and look at these uh, stereo images. And it was very successful. So they wound up doing tie-ins on 29 of the 50 Golden Age 3D features had a movie preview reel. They were not sold. It was strictly for publicity. Yeah, uh, they go for some big bucks now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I've, I've seen the prices. I was lucky to get a complete set over the years, and they're wonderful. We, we have talked about doing something with them on a future release. There's nothing definite right at this time, but uh, I'd love to you know get them onto 3D Blu-ray. Uh, oh, that would be very bonus. cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're great. They're taken on the set. I think the only, uh, the only one that pulled frames from the film was it came from outer space, and that was a combination of universal... Uh, having a closed set and, and a production shrouded in secrecy, but also because they, they used several shots with the uh, special effects that were done in post. So they couldn't do that on a set. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was wondering about that because uh, in the previous episode, Scott Tracy Griffin and I were talking about Tarzan and some of the, the reels that were done that were obviously taken on the sets of the Tarzan films, one with Lex Barker, three with Gordon Scott. And these obviously were not, frames or, or even scenes from the movies they were making at the time. And so I was wondering if in the case of the, uh, uh, those promotional reels for the 3d movies, if in fact they did use actual, you know, left and right images from the, the film versus having a Sawyer's crew there to, to specifically take shots for those reels. But uh, you know, you, you answered that. I also didn't realize that those reels were displayed anywhere other than theater lobbies. So that's interesting that they were more widely distributed. That was the, yeah, I mean, that was the goal. I don't know. I don't have any data on how many, uh, you know, bus stations had the cabinet <laughs> on display, but that was, that was how they pitched 
pitched the promotion. Uh, every press book had a page about the promotion of the Ambassador Reel and, uh, you know, contact your local Sawyer's representative and work at tie-ins and all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great marketing tool. They're, they're fun reels. Uh, keep an eye on eBay because they still <laughs> pop up from time to time. Yes, I know. And I go, oh, wow, <laughs> if only. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, here's a question that I think I might know the answer to, but uh, or at least have a sense of it, but I'm going to throw it out there. I know that there were certain titles that were released on VHS in anaglyphic 3D. I remember working in a video store and we had for sale a, a copy of uh, It Came From Outer Space in anaglyphic. Why did we not have polarized 3D with VHS or even DVD? I think part of it is understanding that with 3D, you're really, just like when you're projecting it and polarized, you have two distinct images where it's a full left image and a full right image. And trying to get a format like VHS or DVD where you can shove basically two pictures into one spot allocated for for one 2D image without compromise was a real tough nut to crack. Um, With VHS, it was pretty much stuck with anaglyph. And again, the advantage of anaglyph is if you have a color TV and you have some paper glasses, you're good to go. There were earlier versions of shutter glasses where, you know, it would, for one sixtieth of a second, you'd see the left eye and then the right eye. But so that's what unlike, we're calling active 3D yes, at this point yes. versus passive. Exactly. In, in the earliest versions of active 3D, unfortunately, were stuck on analog TV's 60 hertz refresh rate. So you would see one thirtieth of a second, the left eye, then the next thirtieth of a second, you know, the right eye. And it caused flicker. And not only that, because you split the fields, those very meager 480 lines for 2D were now split to 240 lines for the left eye and then 240 lines for the right eye. So, you know, again, it's the formats at the time and shoving two streams of information without compromise. And and there were definitely compromises. The field sequential system really delivered some good 3D depth, but when it came to sharpness or uh, not having what you would call um, temporal artifacts, you know, because the system's not what they call in phase. There's motion. And so for one sixtieth of a second, imagine somebody waving their hand, you know, your hand moves between where it was in the left eye and the right eye. And thankfully with today's projectors, they're not going at 60 frames a second. You know, they're going either 120 frames a second or 144. There are some 3D projectors that go 240 frames a second. And that reduces temporal artifacting like that greatly. And, um, you know, and of course resolution with the 3D Blu-ray format you literally are getting 1920 by 1080 lines per eye, you know, so it's uncompromised 3D. My joke is it took about 60 years 
for technology to catch up with the 1950s. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. All right. Well, there's some uh, odds and ends of things here. Now, we talked about money from home earlier, and of course, there's part of me that's thinking, oh, Gosh, I really hope that's one of them that Bob mentioned is in the pipeline, that they've finally cleared up all the issues, and uh, we'll see that coming out. I guess, well, I mean, for me, that's at the top of the list. All the other ones that have been at the top of my list have finally come out. But Money From Home remains up there, and for a lot of people, number one on the list is Hondo, starring John Wayne. Can you give us any status updates on those two? Well, Hondo, there is a... a quite a beautiful 3d restoration that was done by the, the John Wayne estate and occasionally it screens theatrically, but there has not been any definite movement with getting it onto 3d Blu-ray at this point in time. Money from home is the same thing. That's uh, that would be a very complicated 3d restoration because it would involve six strips of film for each shot. You had, yellow sand magenta left and the same for the right uh so it would it would be costly that said we don't give up easily so uh, uh if somehow we can find a way to get our rights and license there may be some surprises so stay hmm. tuned oh, i intend to well another uh similar question i know there was a nat king cole short that you had i think initially announced was going to be part of the first 3d rarities collection unless i'm misremembering and it was going to be on some other title but then it ended up not being i guess and there was some sort of a rights issue came up with that is there any change in that no we were gonna uh, the nat king cold short was originally released in 1953 when it came from outer space and we had hoped uh, when we were working on that title for universal to be able to include it they have the elements it's not a lost film they in fact we had a print struck that screened at a couple of the expos. But unfortunately, the, the deal breaker on that short and the other two 3D shorts that Universal did is that they're loaded with music. And we're talking six or seven songs per two reel short. And as a, an example of how overwhelming a, a challenge that is, uh, it took about five years to clear the glass web for a 3D Blu-ray release from Universal. And that has one song in it. Mm. <laughs> so the idea of uh, tackling one of the shorts with six songs is just impossible. And I wish I could say otherwise, because they're a lot of fun. And they got better. Their techniques improved with each one. And by the time the third one was done, called Hawaiian Nights, with Pinky Lee, mm. Mamie Van Doren, and the Miss Universe Contest <laughs> Beauty winners, Plus, Ben Chapman, who was also playing Creature from the Black Lagoon at the time, that's the best of the three. It is so well-staged for depth and went out flat in 1954. So nobody saw it then, and because it's got half a dozen songs, nobody's going to get to see it now, I'm afraid. Wow, that's too bad. Yeah, I know music rights can uh, be the fly in the ointment on a lot of films. I mean, coming back again to Martin and Lewis, I know that's why Three Ring Circus has not gotten a... Uh, a release because uh, there's one song in it apparently that's hanging it up from that. Uh, I mean, yeah. unless that's been cleared and I haven't realized it. They have, well, it's, uh, they've done a restoration of it uh, and it, it is showing on um, 
some of the streaming services. I don't know if it's, you know, net, not Netflix, but, you know, Voodoo or some of those mm. have, have a nice restoration of it. But yeah, there's, there's one music publisher who thinks that their two minute song in Three Ring Circus is going to make them millions and they just won't, <laughs> they won't, they won't budge. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. What would you say, and I'm thinking, you know, the golden age titles here. What do you think, which title do you think offers the best balance of 3D effect? And I don't necessarily mean pop out, just I mean use of 3D and just being a good movie on its own terms. For me, I would say it's a mix between Inferno and the two, actually, well, the three Jack Arnold's uh, before. Um, it would be Creature from the Black Lagoon, It Came from Outer Space, uh, Revenge of the Creature. The best way I can describe it to you is to tell you that it makes the screen absolutely real and alive. People, objects, landscapes take on a depth and a dimension such as they have in real life. And it has an added quality. Objects actually seem to come out of the screen. So real they almost touch you, creating the most dramatic impact that the screen has ever known. Jack Arnold was really good for me in having off-screen effects, but they play in very naturally. It's part of the story. And you can watch it in 2D and not think anything of it versus some of the 80s titles, you know, if you see them on cable TV, you watch 30 seconds of it and you go, hey, that was shot in 3D because it's pretty blatant. Yeah. Uh, Bob, uh, your thoughts on that? Uh, You know, I'm going to have to go with Inferno. When I had a dual 35-millimeter print and I had people over that had never seen a vintage 3D film, that was my go-to title because it's such a well-done movie. And the... 3D cinematography really puts you in Robert Ryan's precarious position of trying to get out of that desert. It's, it's, I don't think you could beat it. It's, uh, it's definitely one of my favorites. Here is the most desperate adventure that ever pitted one man against canyon, cliff, and blazing desert sands. One man sworn to vengeance against the wife who had betrayed him and left him to die, and the fugitive who shared her guilt. Yeah, and I was thinking uh, really the same thing. I think the dramatic elements in it, just uh, the intensity of it and everything combined with, um, you know, good 3D, that pretty much puts it at the top of my list in that regard. Okay, a quick, probably a silly question regarding Diamond Wizard. Now, it was released in the U.S. as Diamond Wizard. It's been released on 3D Blu-ray as Diamond Wizard. But in Britain, the original, and it's a British film, the original title was simply The Diamond. And that's the only place it was 3D. I'm just curious if you have insight into this, why it was released under the American 2D title versus the British 3D title. Well, it was never released in 3D. It played flat only in 1954 uh, worldwide. And because this was a domestic release of the movie, MGM, UA, released it here in the United States as the Diamond Wizard. So that's how the license was secured through Kino Lorber and that's how the you know that's how the title was uh, was retained. Okay. Well that makes sense. 
you know, you've given a well-deserved shout out to Kino Lorber for their involvement in bringing us so many of these classic 3D films on Blu-ray. But your next big release has you teaming up with a new partner, Bayview Entertainment, as you, in a sense, come full circle and bring us a fully restored edition of Robot Monster. So tell us about that. Thank you. Robot Monster is going to knock people out. Robot Monster brings you an actual preview of the devastating forces of our future. Unsuspected revelations of incredible horrors that will terrify you with their brutal reality. There is no escape from me. Your death will be indescribable. Fool humans. It's, as I mentioned earlier, incredibly well photographed. Uh, it's been an enormous challenge because uh, we had to work from some compromised elements, but uh, I just looked at the most recent revision of it last night. And once again, Greg has pulled so many incredible rabbits out of his hat to make this thing look amazing. I was blown away with how good it looked. And uh, a shout out to Ray Fayola, who handled the audio restoration. Again, a, a very well-recorded track and Elmer Bernstein's eight-piece orchestra never sounded better. And I think people are going to be knocked out with that. And if a restored robot monster isn't exciting enough, we've got 14 bonus extras on this release. Everything from a commentary track from Greg Moffat, who played uh, Johnny in the film. He's going to be 80 next month and has great stories about the, uh, the four days they filmed this movie. We've got a little featurette about his memories of it called Memories of a Pooped Out Pinwheel. And if you don't know what that means, watch the movie. We've got the original short that opened the film called Stardust in Your Eyes with uh, Slick Slavin, kind of warming up the audience and getting you ready for the movie. Hilary Hess has done another stereo slide presentation called Travels in Time and Space. And if you've seen her work on some of her previous releases, you know that she really does an incredible job of taking these stereo realist slides and, and telling a story with them. So we've got that. We've got a Restored 3D comic book from 1953, published by Harvey, called Adventures in 3D. Jack Beekston is putting together a Night at the Movies trailer show to give you uh, previews of half a dozen 3D movies that were playing in L.A. at the time that Robot Monster premiered in June of 1953. And we've got <laughs> a lot of people are surprised by this because it's like, wait a minute, what's this got to do with Robot Monster 3D? We restored a uh, kinescope of Bela Lugosi on You Asked For It in 1953, where he does his magic act. And this thing has been out there circulated for decades in really horrible quality. And we've got a, an original 16-millimeter kinescope that Jack Beekston and Scott Jondro have put through their proprietary system to replicate the look of the original broadcast. So it looks like videotape. It, it, it looks as if you were watching it new in 1953. And to add to that, Gary Rhodes, who's the foremost Bela Lugosi scholar, is doing a commentary track for it. And uh, he will make the point that uh, Lugosi was talking about doing a 3D movie called The Phantom Ghoul. So mm. they'll talk about that a little bit. I know I'm forgetting a few things, but it, it's just a, a great package of all this bonus content. And not all of it is 3D, but at least half of it. So I think people are going to be really, really pleased with this release. And that sounds like a lot of fun. And I'm, and I'm guessing that 
the the pop out effect of the uh, I don't know what Lawrence Welk death machine that uh, is used in the in the movie that uh, <laughs> the bubbles um, yes. that'll be impressive. Uh, well, you know, when you see the film flat, you don't know what the heck these bubbles are doing in some shots. When you see it in three D, it makes perfect sense. Uh, that's it does, be, and that's and uh, the other neat thing too about you know going back to the history of Robot Monster, you know, up until Bob's Elements. For the last, you know, since 1953, people have seen Robot Monster with like 25% of it flat. And the opening credits are amazing in 3D. The uh, hmm. comic book montage is, is really amazing. And for the last, you know, what, 70 years, if you've seen it on home video, you've seen it flat, even if it's been anaglyphic you know, or field sequential, you know, that's been flat. So, so much, so much to see here now because it's really 3D start to finish. I'm looking forward to it because I actually, I, I saw a bit of the end of it years ago uh, on TV, but I've never seen the whole film. So my first viewing of it will be in 3D. So that's going to be very cool. That's great. Now you've also got Southwest Passage coming out in the near future, right? Yeah, that's going to be uh, a 2024 release for the 70th anniversary. I'm really excited about that because up until a few years ago, it was partially lost in 3D. Four of the nine reels were missing. And uh, Darren Gross at MGM was on this for years and years. And they got a printout from a lab in Italy with abandoned elements that had come from a closed facility. And there were four reels of 35 millimeter color negative for a show called Camels West. Darren was savvy enough to know that Camels West was the UK title for Southwest Passage. So and he had not a those, cigarette uh, commercial. No, it should be though, right? Uh, <laughs> so he had those. Uh, he had those reels pulled in, and they were the four missing negatives for I forget which side offhand, but it's fully complete. It's one of nobody has seen in 3D since 1954 and uh, shot on location in uh, Kanab, Utah, in natural vision, the same camera system that they use for House of Wax and Charger Feather River. And it's a fun movie, an interesting story based on using camels to cross the desert. And Rod Cameron, John Ireland, and Joe Andrews star. So that one's going to be uh, a pretty exciting restoration for us. Yeah, and there's others coming out to look forward to. I'm personally interested in, in Buona Devil, another one I've never seen. Of course, that's the one that really started the the big wave of what we call the Golden Age, and then also the Glass Web, which you mentioned. Yeah, I, the Glass I, Web. I should also mention you guys were in a uh, you did an episode of the podcast called Serial at Midnight, where you were interviewed. So people might want to uh, track that down to get a little more interesting information. And with that, uh, I think we come to the question of the hour. Well, question of the end of the hour anyway. So you may have teased it a little bit earlier, Bob, but uh, we'll start with you. What would you say is your most memorable movie-going experience? I'm going to have to say the entire 3D Expo event, and I can't pick a title. It's like, you know, asking you to pick your favorite child it, it, there were so many wonderful moments so much great interaction with the people you know, getting a chance to meet people like ray bradbury and mm -hmm. Catherine grayson at kiss me kate and 
uh, Biff Elliott, and uh, it was just a wonderful experience. So I'm going to say the whole Expo one was probably the pinnacle for me. Okay, Greg, how about you? Yeah, I hate to say it. I, I would have to say the same thing. I mean, Expo one was really an incredible event. I mean, the other two expos were were just as memorable, but that that first one was really lightning in a bottle. Yeah. That's definitely a first and uh, likely to be an only where, you know, I shared the same movie going, memorable movie going experience with uh, my interviewees. But, uh, that was a very, very special event. And I'm very uh, thankful to have been able to participate in it uh, as an attendee. Yes. And Jeff, Jeff Joseph really, you know, I have to hand it to him. You know, he, he did this to you all for the love of the presentation and, and um, kudos to him for, for getting three, what were they, roughly 10-day events each time, Bob? I think so, yeah. Um, that's, that's incredible, um, you know, to pull that off. And all of those titles and sometimes there were specialty prints struck and that was amazing. Well, all right. This has been a, a terrific conversation and uh, i want to thank you guys for joining me and i want to encourage anyone who wants some more information uh, about the archive uh, to visit the 3d film archives website it's loaded with information uh, on 3d movies in general not just the ones we've been talking about in this podcast but it's uh, just you can spend a lot of time on that website wandering around and seeing a lot of cool stuff so give it a visit so once again gentlemen thank you and uh, thank you bill oh, yes my, it was a lot my, of my pleasure and and best wishes with your continued success and efforts well i appreciate it this was a lot of fun let's do it again sometime that sounds good to me all right take care guys thank you Bye-bye. take care I'd like to make a couple of final comments regarding 3d movies more specifically 3d movie viewing at home While newer movies that get 3D theatrical releases may be enhanced by the format, with a few exceptions, they're not produced specifically with 3D in mind, whereas the movies my guests and I discussed were. Consequently, for those who think like us, it's important to be able to view the films in the manner for which they were intended. Its startling story was especially appropriate to three dimensions. Its wild chases, its weird happenings, its thundering climax high in the air aboard a runaway roller coaster, or leap out from the screen as you and the audience join the fugitive man in the dark in three dimensions. To watch a flat print of a 3D movie that fully embraced the technology is a bit like watching a foreign film dubbed into English. Sure, you can watch it, follow the story, and understand the dialogue without the trouble of reading subtitles. But you've lost the nuances of the actors' voices and line deliveries which is a significant part of their performances. Unfortunately, apart from certain models of video projectors that are, generally speaking, more expensive than even the highest-end televisions, the manufacture of 3D TVs in the U.S. has stopped, as has the release of 3D Blu-ray titles by the major studios. A few of the bigger movies are getting 3D Blu-ray releases in other countries, such as Japan and Australia, meaning costly imports for collectors in the U.S., I don't quite understand why the industry used 4K as an excuse to drop 3D from their products rather than combining the two where appropriate. I mean, it seems to me that 3D and 4K would be a marketer's dream slogan. 
I have to think that 3D will make a comeback in the home video market. After all, the tech companies are always looking for the next thing that will prompt consumers to shell out money, even if it's for something they more or less already have, if it's seen as a significant upgrade. Upping the resolution of the image is only effective to a point, after which it becomes either indiscernible to the human eye or incompatible with the human wallet. The logical next step in the viewing experience is something immersive. You haven't seen any real rough-and-tumble love scenes in three dimensions. You have something to look forward to. Even now, there's technology being developed for a type of 3D that doesn't require glasses, so that may be the thing that reboots the 3D home video market. Clearly, there's still enough of a perceived interest in the 3D experience to justify a theatrical re-release of the original Jaws, converted to 3D, as well as the big 3D promotion given to Avatar The Way of Water and Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania. If there wasn't a market for it, the filmmakers and studios wouldn't bother creating it. Anyhow. While we await the enlightenment of studios and hardware manufacturers, I'll be holding on to and enjoying my library of 3D Blu-rays and looking forward to more such releases by the guys at the 3D Film Archive and other sources who are more visionary than the average entertainment executive. I'll step down from my soapbox now and remind you to check out the Movie Nights and Matinees Facebook page and website. Wherever you listen to the podcast, remember to hit the subscribe or follow button, which will boost our ranking and also ensure that you don't miss anything to come. If possible, add a rating or better still, a review. Apple Podcasts allows for this, for instance. Also, swing by the Facebook page and leave some comments there as well. Let me know what you like about the podcasts, anything you're not crazy about, and maybe what you think sets it apart from other movie podcasts. Also, feel free to suggest future topics. So now it's time for me to hit the books in preparation for episode four. Well, hit one book in particular, that is. The book is the 50 MGM films that transformed Hollywood, the latest book by my friend and former co-worker Stephen Bingen. We'll talk about his book as well as the movies featured in it. So metaphorically speaking, I will expect to see you here for episode four. And your little dog, too.